He is risen. Welcome to Easter number two. Uh, we have been going through the book of John all, all through the semester, and, and so we, we camped out in the beginning of chapter 20, so you may want to go ahead and get the Bible off the floor there or pull it up in your phone, or maybe you brought it with you, but you're going to probably want to follow along with me. But last week, we, we just began the first part of the resurrection account uh, in the gospel of John, and, and part of the reason why we're sort of drilling down into these re- resurrection accounts here is because the resurrection is really the foundation of our faith. Uh, if there's no resurrection, well, I'll read it to you what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have Hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Uh, he's pulling no punches there. He's letting us know. If there's no resurrection, we're crazy. We, we, we should forget this Christian thing. Um, and so the, the, the resurrection, again, it, it's, it's the foundation of our faith, which I think is partly why it's so important for us uh, to drill down in these, these chapters, both John 20 and uh, 21. Uh, last week, we looked at some of the internal details that help authenticate the account. Uh, so, for instance, John is giving specific details. He's saying that he was a faster runner than Peter, and he got there to the tomb before Peter did. Uh, he's saying that he saw the grave clothes lying there in, in the tomb. He's saying that he saw the face cloth folded neatly and put uh, to the side. He also is saying that the first eyewitnesses were women, in particular Mary Magdalene which we said in that culture uh, would have not have been something you would have put in if you were trying to make up some kind of a religious uh, myth because uh, the, the testimony of women was not considered uh, something that could be admissible in a court of law. So there's these several things that are in there that when we look at at least the internal evidence, and there's external evidence too, but because we're looking at the text here, we're looking at some of the internal evidence. So uh, one of the other things that authenticate this uh, gospel account, but also the others, is that you see unbelief in the account. You think about that. If you're, you're trying to make up some stories to start a new religion, would you have the leaders of that movement held up in a locked room afraid while the women courageously go to the tomb, and then after you're told that he's risen, you don't believe? I don't think you would make that up. And so in places, places like Luke 24, uh, when they've heard the, the, the testimony of the women, and it says, but these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. Right? Who'd make that up? Why would you make that up? Why would you put that in there? So, so unbelief authenticates these accounts, and we're going to look at John 20 in particular. Uh, a very, if, if, you, if you've done any Bible reading, you know it's a pretty famous example of unbelief. So... Uh, if we pick up from last week, we know that the disciples have heard the eyewitness account of Mary Magdalene and the women, and Mary Magdalene, quote, says, I have seen the Lord, and they don't believe her. And so all during that day, on that Sunday, that first Easter Sunday, they're thinking about it, they're worried about it, they're afraid. We know that from the text. They're just locked up in a room, and, and, and they're, they're traumatized. Maybe you've gone through uh, some sort of a traumatic event. All life just stops. 
You, you just sit there with the other people that are impacted by it, and you talk, and you pray, and you cry, and you wonder, and you try to figure it out, and, and, and it's just this time where, where time just sort of stands still. And it made me think of uh, when 9-11 happened, and first it was like this traumatic event for the whole country, and we were watching the TV, and just everything just kind of ground to a halt, and we weren't thinking about paying the bills, and weren't thinking about grocery shopping, and weren't thinking about anything except this thing has just did happen. And about 24 hours in, we found out that Jessica Sachs, who was one of the college students that helped us plant Mercy House, was on one of the flights that hit the two towers in 9-11. And then it was a whole nother level of sitting with those first few students and others that helped start the church and just grieving and talking and praying and wondering why. And I'm imagining there's something similar going on with the disciples, except they had actually seen the brutality that was done against Jesus on the cross. They, They had seen it. And so reliving that and and flashing back to that and thinking about that and being in that locked room together trying to process what they had experienced over those last few hours. And so that that time passes about 10-ish hours, and then we pick up the story in John 20, verse 19. It says, on that evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and He stood among them. And He said to them, peace be with you. When He had said this, He showed them His hands and His side And the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. So after a few hours of of having to wrestle with this eyewitness testimony from Mary Magdalene and the other women, they get their opportunity to see the Lord. Uh, Jesus reveals himself um, in a show-and-tell kind of way, right? He does both the show and the tell. Um, He does the show, first of all, by standing among them. He's three dimensions. He's, he's in a bodily form. He's in the room with them. When he puts his feet on the ground, there, there's weight being held up, right? You say, well, why are you saying that? Well, because for the disciples, they lived in a very superstitious world. They're ancient peoples. We're modern peoples, right? We're, we're anti-supernatural. That's our default, and that's our problem. But, but they are to the other side in their default. Everything, there's a ghost behind every tree, a demon, an angel, and they're interpreting everything that's going on through some kind of spiritual lens. So when they see this Jesus figure, their, their first thought is, it's a ghost, and in fact, when he even walked on, on the water, uh, they go, oh, it's a ghost. That's like their default, right? And so in Luke 24, Jesus actually eats a piece of fish to show that, and he says, I'm not a ghost, <laughs> which is weird to us, but that's because we're not ancient. We're not ancient peoples. We're modern peoples, right? And so he stands among them. Not only does he show in that way, but he shows his hands and his, his side, right? Um, he is not as recognizable as his previous body. There, there's, there's some differences there. We know when he's walking on uh, this road to Emmaus with a couple of other disciples, and they don't recognize him at first. Um, and so there's something to his, his glorified body that's not as recognizable as, as, you, as you might uh, think, but he has these scars that are his calling card. And those scars tell his story. And he says, remember the before picture of, of the big reveal? Remember that I was a victim of crucifixion? Look at, look at my hands. Look at my side. But look at my after picture. 
Look at the big reveal that the power of God has been exerted in my body. Now I am resurrected, not resuscitated like Lazarus was to die again, but resurrected to live forever and ever. Amen. And so he, he reveals that by showing them that that is indeed the reality. Now, he also tells them, he says, peace be with you. That would be a very common Jewish greeting. Be like us saying hi or hello. Uh, it, it, it means, well, the, the Hebrew is shalom. And that shalom meant peace, not just in general, but peace with God, peace within yourself, peace with others, peace with the earth. And it was something that the Jews were longing for. Longing for shalom. It's what we're all longing for. It's what the folks that were out, out there, maybe you were out there on the common for Earth Day. They're longing for shalom. They may not understand that they need peace with God, but they know that they want peace on the planet in relationships. They want peace with our relationship with the earth. We, we all desire this, this shalom, and the Jews were, were longing for that, and they would, would, would long for that uh, by articulating this greeting of shalom. They were also expecting it to come someday. That when God would return as, 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 the, as the Messiah, as the King, He would establish shalom. And so this was something that was said every day, day in, day out. I don't think Jesus is just using just some sort of form of greeting. He's saying shalom is here right now. Shalom is standing in the room. That through the blood of the, the cross that's been shed, now, victory over sin and death and hell has come, and because of that, now there is peace with God, there's peace within yourself, there's peace with others, there's peace uh, with the earth, and that the resurrection proves that that is indeed what's happening. And you say, well, why does the resurrection prove that? Well, because the resurrection proves that Jesus beats sin. You say, well, why does it prove that? Well, because He beat death, and death is a consequence of sin. Something like this. So Jonathan Frizz, some of you know Jonathan Frizz. He was in the hospital last week with malaria. Usually when, when people get infected with malaria, about 1% to 3% of their red blood cells get infected. He had a 20% infection rate. He's in really bad shape, non-responsive, hooked up to IVs, giving him morphine for uh, his pain, pumping him full of all kinds of drugs. Uh, I'm getting texts from Cassie, his wife, uh, every day. Uh, he, he actually he contracted it while he was in Africa doing some ministry, came back, and here he was, had malaria, and he was on his deathbed. This guy's got like five kids. Uh, and, and, and so he was at church today, and he's, he's fine. <laughs> and I didn't have to like do a blood test to see if he'd beat malaria. I knew he'd beat malaria because he is risen. John Frizz has risen from his hospital bed, and he's healthy. He's beat malaria. Same thing with Jesus. He's risen. He's beat death, so I know he's beat the actual infection that was causing death, which was sin. He's beat that enemy. And so shalom is being offered to the disciples. He says, peace be with you. That thing that they've been longing for, that thing that they've been waiting for, he's saying it's here, it's in the room, and it's proven by the resurrected Jesus. So now what? Like, okay, beam me up, Jesus. Like, I'm all into this shalom. I, yeah, 
I've been longing for that. I've been waiting for the Messiah to come and, and, and bring this. So, so get me out of here. I want to be airlifted out of this sin-soaked world. I've got enemies within. I've got enemies without. I want out of here. Now, he's already told them that's not what he's going to do. In, actually, in the book of John, John 14, 15, 16, 17, he coaches them up in regard to how things are going to go forward when he ascends and the Spirit descends. But he explains it again. He's a good teacher. He says the same thing again and again and again. Here he says a brief summary, really, of what he says in the Upper Room Discourse. So verse 21, he says to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them, and he said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. So he tells them something. He not not only shows them some things, but but he tells them some things. So he says, because of the shalom that you have, the peace of Jesus that you have through the cross, which has been proven by the resurrection, now consider yourself sent. If you've known shalom, then you're sent. And he says, as the Father has sent me, so I send you. Now, what does he mean by that? Is he saying, okay, disciples, I want you to go die on crosses so that people can be forgiven. No, he's not saying that. Partly because the disciples are not perfect, so they can never be a perfect sacrifice for the sins of others, but also because that job's already been done. The work of Christ has already been done. It's a once-for-all sacrifice for sin. It's done. No one else needs to do that. So what is he talking about? Well, he's talking about the proclamation of that shalom that's been blood-bought on the cross by Jesus. That, that's how it is that we would, 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 would be sent. That, that's the message that we are sent with. Again, he talks about forgiveness here. Again, I'll read it, verse 23. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Again, a little bit of a, a confusing passage possibly. On surface reading, you'd say, are, are, are you saying that the disciples are walking around and going, I don't like you, so I'm not going to forgive you. I do like you, so I'm going to forgive you. No, that's obviously not what's going to happen. And no one can forgive sins except God. <laughs> so what is being said is, is that they are, when, when they proclaim and demonstrate the gospel, the shalom of Jesus, people can have access to forgiveness. If they don't proclaim it and demonstrate the, the shalom of Jesus, people don't have access to forgiveness. If they don't know the gospel, they can't be forgiven because they have to, they have to receive this by faith. And so he's saying, I'm sending you. And, and this is a very important mission because people can't get forgiven if they don't hear the gospel of, of Jesus Christ. Now, you may be thinking, wow, that's a big job. Right? And he wasn't just talking to the disciples. He's talking to every other follower of Christ throughout uh, history. He's talking to us. And he's saying, I'm sending you. Just as the Father sent me, I am sending you. Consider Jesus himself speaking to you. If you're Christ's follower, he's saying, I am sending you. Right? And, and he said, well, what, what do you mean? Is he, does everyone have to go to another country and be a missionary? No, but some do. But everyone's sent. 
And so when you're at work or you're at school or in your dorm room or you're in your neighborhood or you're going to the bus stop, consider yourself sent. You're always sent. You always have the, the, the shalom of Jesus that you can offer uh, someone in, in, in proclaiming it and demonstrating it to the people in your life. There are places that you go, I'll never go. I don't have access to those places. I'm not smart enough to be a PhD in computer science. I can't do that. So I'll never be in the computer science department of the University of Massachusetts. I'll never be a nurse. I'll never be in the PhD program. I'll never be an undergrad again. Thank God. Right? I'll never work as a lawyer. Right? So there's a ton of places. I'll never be a school teacher, as far as I know. Right? So, so those places are places where, where if that's where you are, consider yourself sent in those places. God has placed you there. He's ordained for you to be there. Sometimes you just think, it's a dumb job. I hate school. I can't wait to get out of here. Life's going to be really great in the future, but right now I'm just bearing it. No! You've been put there. You've been placed there. You've been sent there. Now, again, you think, well, that's a big job. I don't know if I can do that. Well, think about what else he says here, that those that have received the shalom consider themselves sent in the power of the Holy Spirit. He says to the disciples, receive the Holy Spirit. Now, to some who you've been reading your Bibles, you're like, that's confusing because in Acts, it seems like the Holy Spirit comes in in Acts chapter 2, and then here he's saying receive it there. And what seems to be happening is he's, he's teaching them that they cannot be on this shalom mission, uh, unless they have the Holy Spirit, and, and that it, it will come later, right? But he's, he's letting them know, you can't do this without the Holy Spirit. In fact, he tells them later, I want you to stay put until you get the Spirit. So we know that he's kind of clarified that for them, that this moment is a moment where he's teaching them, you must receive the Holy Spirit before you're sent to, to bring the shalom uh, to others, now, he has explained to them in earlier chapters the role of the Holy Spirit. Now, the, the Spirit has a, uh, a pretty wide spectrum of a job description, uh, but I want you to look at with me John 16, where Jesus explains to them uh, the role of the Holy Spirit. In John 16, verse 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no more. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. Okay? So, Holy Spirit does a lot of things, encourages, comforts, but here... What he's revealing is that the Holy Spirit convicts the world. And the world are those that don't believe yet. Right? And so he convicts them. What does that mean? He convicts them of, of three things, of sin and righteousness and judgment. So sin, right? that they are sinners, right? that, that they are not bearing the image of God uh, perfectly, that, that they're falling short of that. And because of that, they're, they're sinning, and they're sinning against a holy God who is righteous. 
right? That's the other conviction. You're being convicted that God is holy. God is righteous. So now you're like, okay, I'm a sinner, and also God is righteous, and I'm separated from God because of that uh, sin and His righteousness. And what's the big deal about that? Well, because of that, I'm under judgment. And you say, well, that's a real downer. (laughs) Holy Spirit's going around convincing people that they're sinners, that God is righteous, that they're under judgment. Well, it's what's true, Jesus calls him the spirit of truth. So he's just telling, telling humans what's true, but he's telling them what's true so they understand their need for a Savior. And so as they understand sin, righteousness, and judgment, it, it gives them the, 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 the motivation to believe. And that's the whole point of the Gospel of John, to call people to believe. And, and you're thinking, well, why do we need so much help to believe? Because sin has affected everything. Sin is deceiving our minds. Sin, sin is deceiving our emotions. Uh, sin is hardening our hearts. We're in bad shape. We're dead. We're spiritually dead. And, and, and so in order to rescue us, God the Father has to send God the Son to die in our place. But even then, God the Son has, or God the Spirit has to be sent to, to apply that salvation to us. We're in horrible shape. But God loves us. And because of that, the whole Trinity is involved in saving us, both the Son, the Spirit, sent by the Father. The the fact that belief uh, doesn't come so easily is illustrated in the story of Thomas, very next portion here. So verse 24, it says, Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Now, poor Thomas, because of this story, he's been called the Doubting Thomas. For 2,000 years, he's been called the Doubting Thomas. I think that's a little hard on him, okay? Uh, he has some brighter moments earlier in, in the Gospel of John. We won't go there. Uh, but he, he, he's definitely unwilling to believe based on multiple eyewitness accounts. He's got the women that are saying this, that they've seen the Lord. He's got his own disciples that he's been hanging with for three years. They're saying, we have seen the Lord, Thomas. And he's saying, I will never believe. Now, we want to give him some benefit of the doubt because, again, he is an ancient. He's not a modern. So, I don't think he's saying, you guys didn't see anything. I think he's saying, I I think you saw a ghost. I think you saw a spirit. Uh, I don't think you saw a a Christ in bodily uh, form. It's it's also pointing to to the nature of belief. That belief is not less than evidence. It's not based on less than evidence, but it is more than evidence. I'll say that again. It, it's not based on less than evidence. Sometimes people say, well, faith is just a, like a leap in the dark. It's not based on evidence. It's feeling, and it's just sort of whatever emotionally, like you think about your faith. Just No, that's not Christianity. That's not truth. So, so you're, you're basing your faith, as I said before, on the, the, the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus actually happened in history. But it's more than that. True belief is more than that. And John has been telling us that throughout his entire book. Even in the opening chapter, in the introduction, remember back here in John 1, verse 11, he says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, but 
to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then check this next part out. Who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So from the very first chapter, he's saying this true belief is brought about by a spiritual rebirth that's brought about by God. Right? He says something similar to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says to Nicodemus, who he's got all kinds of information, he's PhD type in, in, in God's Word, and he says, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So there it is again. He's saying to Nicodemus, it's not, it's not less than evidence, but it is more. You're born of the Spirit. John 6, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. Right? This is even true of some folks that, that are seeing the 3D Jesus. This always, I, I kind of marvel at this, Matthew 28. Uh, this is post-resurrection, verse 16. Eleven uh, disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. Like, wow, really? You, you're there in the presence of a three-dimensional resurrected Jesus. You see the thing, and you still, some of you don't believe. It's because they're the nature of belief. It's not less than evidence, but it is more. It requires a supernatural regeneration, supernatural rebirthing in order to believe in the gospel. So Thomas is left to consider the eyewitness accounts of his friends for eight days. Remember the disciples before, they just had like 10 hours. They heard from Mary Magdalene and the other women, and then for 10 hours they had to wrestle with that and think about that and try, try to consider, well, I base my faith based on eyewitness account of these women. But Thomas has eight days. And I'm thinking they're having conversations along, all along those eight days. They, hey, Thomas, have you thought more about the eyewitness things that we were saying to you? What are your thoughts? Oh, yeah, I still don't believe. Why not? Like, John saw it. Peter saw it. Bartholomew saw it. Like, we saw it. Mary Magdalene saw it. Like, we, we saw it. Come on, Thomas, you've got to believe. No, no. <laughs> Some of you have friends like this. <laughs> You've been talking to them about Christ. Multiple people have been talking to them about Christ. You're like, no, 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 no. And then this moment comes. Eight days later, verse 26, his disciples were inside again. And Thomas was with them, and although the doors were locked, and Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here. See my hands. Put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Jesus reveals himself specifically to Thomas. And it's sort of an oops moment for Thomas, I would think. Jesus knows what he was saying behind closed doors when Jesus wasn't there in a physical, in a physical form. He knew that Thomas said, I'll never believe if I don't touch his hands and I don't touch his side. And Jesus said, hey, I heard you. <laughs> I heard you. So go ahead. You need that? You go right ahead. Touch my hands. Touch my side. I'm not sure if he's like pulling up his robe or what he was doing here, but, but he's like, go ahead. There it is. The nails tell the story that you know the before pick. This is the after pick. And then he commands him, and he says, stop disbelieving. 
and believe. Jesus can do that. He's Jesus. I won't command you later in the sermon, stop just believing and believe, but Jesus can. And I will relay that message to you later. But he, he, he commands Thomas to believe. And this is Thomas's response in verse 28, my Lord and my God. He believes. He believes. And he utters one of the most beautiful professions of faith in the Bible. Where he, yes, he says, my Lord, right? I'm submitting to your authority. We, we know it's true belief uh, in part because there's fruit of true belief, which is submission to Christ as Lord. That's fruit of, of true belief. And, and, and then he utters true understanding of his character. And he says, my God. This is something that John has been teaching us throughout his his book is a bit of a climax here where he's been telling us Jesus is God. Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's God. Remember back in the opening uh, verses of, of John where he says, in the beginning was the Word, okay, and the, and the Word is Jesus, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And John lets us know he, he is divine. He's the divine Son of God. He's the Savior of the world. He's died on the cross. He's been buried. He's risen from the dead. All of that vindicates what Christ has said about His person and His work. And he gives Thomas a, a bit of a, a gentle rebuke uh, where he comments on his lack of belief. Verse 29, he says to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who've not seen and yet have believed. Well, this is most of us, is it not? Most of us have, have not had the, uh, the, the privilege of being in the room with, with a 3D Jesus who's showing us the nail scars. And Jesus says, blessed are those. Better is it, right, that they've not seen and yet believe. Now, how could he say that? That's confusing to us. We think, man, if Jesus, if you could just meet me at Share Coffee across from the table, we could have coffee together, and I could see you in three dimensions, and we, and we could talk, then I would believe. And Jesus is saying, mm, nope. No, actually, it's better that you see Jesus with the eyes of your heart through the, the Scripture that's empowered by the Spirit. Because in part, you don't have to transition from a 3D Jesus in the room to uh, the Holy Spirit. This was really hard for the disciples. They were with Jesus uh, 24-7. They're following Him, and by following, I mean they looked at the back of His head, and whatever He did, they did, and, they just and then all of a sudden Jesus is going, no, it's better that I leave and I send you the Helper. And they're going, no, that can't be right. Well, we never had to make that transition. All we know is God revealing Himself through His Word, through the power of the Spirit. And the Spirit, is he, He's not confined to a human body. He, he, he doesn't get tired. He, he can dwell in every believer on the planet. He's available 24-7, much better than a physical Jesus. Think, of, think about uh, 3 billion people trying to, to, to get a coffee date with the physical Jesus. It would not work, but it works great with the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It is better. And uh, John finishes up with his thesis, what I'm calling his thesis statement, verse 30. He says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in, in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. 
John lets you know. It, it, it is based on evidence. He said, I'm writing these things, these historical things. Why? Just so you can be smarter and know a little more about history? No, so you can believe. So yes, it's based on evidence, but it's more than evidence. It's a supernatural rebirth of, of your heart, whereby the work of the Son is applied by the ministry of the Spirit, and you come alive in belief in the gospel. Is that you this morning? There's been uh, several folks this semester who, they're coming awake. They're feeling that conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment, and they're running to the cross. They're running to the Savior. We had a Meet Mercy House class uh, yesterday. Right now, we've got about a dozen people that are going to be professing their faith through, through baptism. And they're professing that they've come to a place where they, they've believed. And not all of them have believed, you know, this month. Some of them have been believers for a while and need to get baptized. But, uh, but I know there's some in the room. You, you, you feel, you sense, you hear the call of God's Spirit convicting you of sin, righteousness, judgment, sending you to believe in the cross. So I have a message from Jesus. Stop disbelieving and believe He's, he's same thing he said to Thomas, and he can say that because he's Jesus. So, so believe. John and, and Thomas, Mary Magdalene, they definitely believed. They definitely believed. I mean, uh, church tradition tells us Thomas went to India to take the gospel, and he was, he was martyred there. Uh, John, we know, uh, by, from church tradition, was boiled in oil because of his faith. And he, he lived through that, so they put him on Patmos, uh, kind of a maximum security prison uh, for the Roman Empire. And he lived out his days there. But he never let go of this truth of, of Christ's death, his burial, his resurrection. These folks went to their death, proclaiming and demonstrating the shalom of Jesus that has been given to us through the cross. To the believer, there's a command in here for us. The command is, as the Father sent Jesus, so Jesus sends you. Consider yourself sent. This was not just for those original disciples. This is for every follower of Jesus. So wherever you find yourself, classroom, workplace, neighborhood, bus stop, family, what, wherever, Consider yourself sent. And consider yourself sent to demonstrate and proclaim the shalom of Jesus, knowing that you're doing that in the power of the Holy Spirit. You're not doing this alone. The primary witness of Jesus, of the gospel, is the Holy Spirit. He's merely using us to be the ones who are, are delivering that message. But He's doing the hard work. He's convicting the people that they need Jesus. He's even speaking through us and helping us with our words and helping us with our countenance and helping us with our energy. And I mean, He's doing it. He's doing it. But it requires faith. It requires trusting that, that the Spirit would actually give us what we needed when we step into the sentness uh, that we live in from Jesus. We are reminded of this uh, shalom every time we come to this table. One of the words we, we use to, to, to indicate this is we talk about communion, right? And so we're, we're celebrating. We have communion with God. We have peace with God. We also have peace with each other. And how did that come about? Well, 
through the thing that this signifies, the cross. We're reminded on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the night before His death, that He took bread, He broke it, gave it to His disciples saying, take, eat, this is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then He took the cup and He said to them, as often as you drink, I want you to, to take this uh, cup and I want you to remember the blood of the new covenant. And, and I want you to remember it because that blood of the new covenant, guess what it brings about? Forgiveness of sins. And so as often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. And, and, and so we're getting a little taste of shalom as, as, as we consider our communion with God, our peace with God, and, and we consider our peace with each other. And all that has been blood-bought on the cross by Jesus Christ. And having a meal with God and with each other symbolizes that, that unity. And it's a reminder that we, we need we need, we forget, because we're in this sort of already but not yet shalom. We get some glances of shalom. Yeah, there, there's, there, we definitely are reconciled with God if we're a Christian. And to some degree, our, our relationship with ourself has been transformed. But then there's still insecurities and fears and things we're wrestling with. And then our relationships with each other, to some degree, are transformed. But there's still a work in progress. And there's sin and, and there's misunderstanding. And, and we're having to work through that stuff. And, and even our relationship with the earth, like we're trying to figure it out. And we're trying to be good stewards. So it's not perfect yet. I know that. Which is why Jesus said, would you do this until I come back? And when I come back, I'm going to bring shalom in its complete form. And you're going to be completely right within yourself, with others, with the world. So hold on. <laughs> hold on, continuing to, to be sent and to bring the shalom of God to each other and to the world and do so until I come back. And so as we take this, let's, let's be reminded of that mission that we're on and the promise that Christ will return and He will bring this shalom. Let's pray. Lord, we are grateful that um, You have done everything needed to rescue us from the predicament that we've been in. Lord, we could have never beat sin and death and hell. No matter how hard we tried, no matter how many strategies we came up with, no matter how many spiritual experiences we had or mystical uh, religions we participated in, Lord, the only way we could ever be rescued from uh, th this broken world is, is, is by you dying in our place. And so we're, we, we profess that today as we take the bread and the cup. And we're grateful to you, God, that, that you say to us, peace be with you. And we know it came at a high cost to you. And so, Lord, as we, as we remember that, God, uh, we, we, we pray, Lord, that, that would motivate us to then move out from this place to bring shalom, both to each other, but also uh, peace to, to this world as we move out with the gospel, to demonstrate it and to proclaim it to those that we've been sent to. And so, Lord, would you bless the bread and the cup and bring us into communion with you as we take it in remembrance of what you've done. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.